Welcome back to Time Out Radio on KDRT 95.7 FM in Davis, California. This is your host, Rohan Bakshi. Cooper's Hawk at 1 o'clock, our guide from the YOLO Audubon Society tells us. My Team Davis hiking club that's gathered at the UC Davis Arboretum for a Saturday morning birding adventure peers up together to try and spot our new feathered friend through our binoculars. A family of mallard ducks in descending order of size floats by us in the lake below. A couple of Anna's hummingbirds whiz past us and hover around a bottle brush tree looking for nectar. The star of the show is a large double-crested cormorant perched perfectly still on a rock in the center of the lake with its wings spread out. Our guide tells us this bird can spend hours each day standing with its wings spread open to dry its feathers after it fishes in the water for its food. Although it's a water bird, its feathers are not waterproof. Just one of the many fun facts that I learned from my day-long introduction to birding, the hobby of observing birds in their natural habitat, which is what this episode of Time Out Radio is all about. Dedicated birders often travel specifically in search of birds to study and list them and consider it their serious hobby. Ornithologists, on the other hand, are scientists who study birds for a living using scientific methods. The COVID-19 pandemic led to a sudden rise in the popularity of birding. People of all ages and backgrounds picked up a pair of binoculars during this prolonged period of social distancing and limited recreational opportunities to track turkeys and spot sparrows in their neighborhoods. With it grew a booming bird-watching ecotourism industry. About 50 million people in the United States were birders pre-pandemic, and that number soared when people started looking for local hobbies they could pursue with other people in their households during the pandemic. Apart from buying a pair of binoculars and some bird seed, birding is pretty much free. You can pursue it in your backyard or at public parks. Urban parks attract migrating birds who are looking for a spot to take a break and are a great place to hone your skills. You can also go to important birding areas, or IBAs. These are places that have a large concentration of specific bird species. There are about 2,800 IBAs in the United States that cover 400 million acres of public and private lands. California has 149 important birding areas, over 10 million acres of its picture-perfect coastlines, dense forests, vast valleys, and dramatic deserts, one of the largest, most diverse concentrations of birds in the country. The average age of birders is getting younger. Initially thought to be a hobby that retired people take up, enthusiasts of wildlife photography and former hunters have now joined the flock. Guided bird tours have become a major business. Birding ecotourism is a rapidly growing industry that contributes about $40 billion a year to the U.S. economy. A positive aspect about this rise in interest in avian adventures is more interest in biodiversity conservation issues that could help save endangered species and lead to bird habitats being valued and protected. Birders can also help build environmental knowledge through citizen science by observing and counting birds, and their social media feeds can raise awareness about habitat protection. The Christmas bird count is an annual census of birds 
where volunteer birdwatchers in the Western Hemisphere observe and count birds to collect data that conservation biologists and other scientists can use. It's run by the National Audubon Society, a nonprofit environmental organization dedicated to the conservation of birds and their habitats, named after the 19th century naturalist John James Audubon. The Christmas bird count started in December of 1900 and is the longest-running citizen science survey in the world. Our guests on today's episode are Zane Piggis and Bart Wickle from Yolo Audubon Society, who tell us about how beginners can get into birding and how we can learn more from our feathered friends in and around Davis. Then, we explore the biodiverse country of Ecuador, which has 1,600 species of birds, and is our place of the week. Up next is Where We've Gone by Bronze Whale. I've been lost for words in a week I'm gone Trying to get in word, but the days stay long in You say I've been off, but I've been having fun Maybe I turn on when both the ends get burned now And all I know is when we're gone 
Welcome back to Time Out Radio on KDRT 95.7 FM in Davis, California. This is your host, Rohan Bakshi. Our guests on today's episode are Zane Pickus and Bart Wickle from Yolo Audubon Society. Their group's mission is to foster an appreciation of birds and other wildlife through educational programs and field trips, bring conservation issues to public awareness, and preserve Yolo County's bird life and habitat. So, Zane and Bart, welcome to Time Out Radio. First off, Zane, you went to uh, Davis High School and are now an undergraduate student at UC Davis. And Bart, you're an earth scientist who works on technology that tackles climate and ecosystem issues. So why birds? And how did each of you get interested in birding? Um, I can go first on that. I got interested in birds through class projects, especially when I was early on in elementary school. My teacher in second and third grade had us do bird reports. And I remember just that exposure and uh, learning about local birds was really eye-opening for me. And I've just had an appreciation for them ever since. And I took a photography class in junior high and I kind of got into that. And between my appreciation for being outdoors and birds and photography, it all kind of came together. And now I'm studying wildlife and trying to make this my career. So Bart, you should take a stab at it. Yeah, I, uh, I grew up in Holland just north of Amsterdam, and I was always surrounded by fields and uh, wetlands. And from a young age, I loved being outdoors and, yeah, almost instinctively look, like looking at birds. And like Zane mentioned, for me, it very much went hand in hand with photography, which is really key for beginning birders to be able to identify and look up what you saw. So yeah, both photography and birding were a passion since I was probably 12, 13, and I've been at it since. Yeah. And you both recently led our uh, Team Davis group on a bird watching walk at the UC Davis Arboretum. And that was, you know, a novel experience for me and for most people in our group. So what sorts of things do you typically look for when you go birding? I would say it really depends. Sometimes I like getting outside and going places I haven't been. I feel like birding has taken me some really incredible places. And sometimes I like to try to help other people get into it too. I mean, this hobby is changed my life and if i can give that opportunity to other people through leading field trips or helping other people out then i really appreciate that as well there's two two modes of birding for me there's sort of being by yourself and being out there and enjoying quiet moment and really immersing yourself in nature and looking at birds and then i definitely connected with a broader community of birders like zane and others in town and it's also really enjoyable to bird together with others and then share it on field trips or other kinds of outings. 
Yeah. And you asked people in our group that went bird watching uh, with you to bring binoculars with us if we had them. So in general, what equipment does one need to go birding? Any type of binoculars. I would say, I think starting at 80 to 100 bucks, you can find somewhat reasonable pairs. Of course, they get really expensive. I still really have to see the value of the $2,000 plus binoculars. Recently, there was a, I saw a piece on the Binoculars that identify birds for you, as you look at them through AI, it uh, identifies them. I think they're seven, $8,000. That's a little crazy. I'd start with the $100 pair. Yeah. I'd actually add something to that. I met a lot of people at UC Davis who really appreciate birds and wildlife, and a lot of them only have cameras. And some of them, they're all like, you know, entry-level cameras that take great photos. And I think that's a cool way to get into it too, because like Bart mentioned earlier, sometimes you'll see something and you'll take that picture, but you don't know what you photographed. And if you have that, you can go back and look at it. So everybody looks to binoculars as like the main tool for birding, and it definitely is. But cameras can be really effective too, and sometimes can take the place of binoculars. So if you already have a camera, I wouldn't necessarily feel like you need to go out and buy something new. Give that a try first. Yeah. And what are some good places to go birding in our area? Uh, well, the Ola Audubon Society has a great list with maps and information on their website. We can talk more about that at the end. But in general, looking for a diversity of habitats is really important. So some of the best places is like Puda Creek, the Ola Bypass Wildlife Area, which is in the causeway between here and Sac. And... Just anywhere where you can see water is big, so ponds. There's a lot of really good open spaces that are open to the public, and taking advantage of those is really helpful. Yeah, and to help us learn more about the birds in our area and to pursue the hobby of birding, is there a field guide that residents in our area can use, and if so, which one? I would actually say there are so many apps now on phones that are incredibly helpful. I mean, traditionally, bird books with drawings of birds, like Sibley's, can be good. But there's so many resources online that I'd really look there first. And just to mention a great resource, eBird has a tool and a website that really helps you identify which birds could be present in that particular area. And also provide, again, resources where you can look up birds. Yeah. And I've seen many uh, bird lovers put up, you know, a feeder in their yards. Uh, what is the best way and the best things to feed birds? That's a good question. I would say you really don't need to do anything crazy to attract birds to your backyard. Bird feeders are great. Seed, so like your basic millet, sunflower mix that you can get from the hardware store is perfect. Doesn't need to be anything extra fancy. They can, they'll try to add stuff to it, but it's really not necessary. You just need the basics, something that'll bring in your sparrows and your morning doves and other birds will follow. I will add that it's really important to clean your feeders. They can get pretty dirty, especially in the winter when it's raining a lot. Basically, just want to empty them out and clean them with the water and really, really light bleach solution to kill all the bacteria and stuff. But yeah, just a basic seed feeder, like a, a tube or a platform will bring in a lot of birds to your yard. So I would mm -hmm. definitely give that a try. Yeah. And are there specific plants or trees that we can grow in our yard if we want to attract birds there? I've looked a bit into that and uh, there are a lot of resources online. I think in general, native species are what you want. And especially if you're trying to draw in hummingbirds or yeah, slightly more charismatic bird species, I would 
I would definitely go for flowering local species. Uh, the UC Davis Arboretum has a nursery that has uh, frequent sales of plants and native species. Uh, and I think they can also guide a bit on that. Yeah. And what's sort of a common myth about uh, birds or birding? Um, and can you debunk it? Yeah, this is a cool question that I've been thinking about. I would say a myth that I feel like people have is that to truly go birding, you have to go somewhere or you have to spend a bunch of money and drive really far, go to some big wildlife refuge or something. But I don't agree with that at all. And I think when I was first really getting into birding, the most eye-opening thing for me was just walking around my neighborhood and local parks with binoculars and looking around and realizing just how many birds there are in kind of unexpected places. And yeah, there's a great diversity of species that you can see just in towns and parks. So yeah, I think the biggest myth is that it, it doesn't take much to see a lot. You just got to get outside and give it a try. Yeah, that's a great answer. I think uh, starting your yard <laughs> to make it, uh, keep it short, like start yeah where you are. And it's also fun, I think, to start birding and keeping a list of what you see nearby it's easy to do and so easy to add to your yard list and then slowly but steadily you can expand your range and become knowledgeable about everything that's around you mm -hmm. and the next couple of questions are about things that i have experienced so what do i do if i you know i find a baby bird on the ground all alone and you know don't see any parent birds around i think uh leaving it alone in general is unfortunately still the best option you don't know where the parents are uh, touching it will definitely uh, increase the chances of the bird the baby bird being rejected by its parents and another thing is just touching wildlife like that birds like that could expose you to west nile virus and other diseases and so it's just not a good idea to pick them up another point too is a lot of times when you see baby birds in the ground they're actually not in a state of helplessness a lot of birds go through a phase where after they've left the nest when they're trying to fly um, they call it fledging and that whole period lasts i think it's about a week basically they're just trying to grow in their feathers so they're strong enough to fly but in that process they're usually stuck on the ground and the parents are usually close by and watching them but um, it seems like they're helpless but they're really just going through a natural process as they learn how to fly and I read that about a billion birds die from window strikes in the U.S. each year because windows reflect trees or the sky. They look like, you know, inviting places to fly to. How could people keep birds from flying into their windows? Yeah, I'm really glad you brought this question up because it's it's definitely really important. But they make a lot of cool stickers and stuff that you can put in your windows. Basically, what it really takes from what I've been told is just something that breaks up that reflection. So it doesn't have to be like a full curtain or anything, just like little stickers or magnets maybe that you put on both sides that hang in your window. That'll change the depth perception for the birds and make it a lot less likely for them to collide with your windows. And here's a little bit of uh, an out-of-the-box question. Um, if you were a type of bird, what type of bird would you be and why? All right, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> uh i'd say why not a hummingbird <laughs> i'm high energy and love to fly around yeah <laughs> maybe my hyperactivity is best reflected by uh, a hummingbird uh, and as hummingbird why not our local yeah. most common species <laughs> i like that answer 
Um, I'd go a little different. I would say a prairie falcon. Um, they live in really cool habitats like in open grasslands or on the tundra up north. They're really powerful flyers. They can fly super, super fast. So that looks pretty fun. And they're good looking birds. So I think it'd be cool. Yeah. Uh, and to wrap it up, where can our listeners find more about Yolo Audubon Society's events or programs? Well, the Yolo Audubon Society maintains a website and a Facebook page. There's information about field trips, monthly meetings, some different columns that are written in the newsletter each month. Yeah, there's a lot of information. There's the, the website has, a like I mentioned before, a where to go birding page. So there's like 20 different spots with maps and information on what birds you might see. Yellowaudubon.org. All right, well, thank you so much, Shane and Bart, for joining me on Time Out Radio today. Great to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, that's Zane Pickus and Bart Wickle from the Yolo Audubon Society. And that was Let It Go by Boo Sika. In today's travel segment, we visit the country of Ecuador, 
located in South America. It borders the Pacific Ocean and two South American countries, Colombia and Peru. Ecuador is named for the equator. It is located on the equator more exactly between 2 degrees north and 5 degrees south latitudes. Home to 18 million people, its capital is Quito where 2 million of its residents live. Quito lies 9,350 feet above sea level, which makes it the second highest capital in the world after La Paz in Bolivia and the closest capital to the equator. Ecuador's official currency is the U.S. dollar since 2000, when it replaced the 118-year-old Sucre after a financial crisis. Ecuador issues centavo coins, which it did partly because U.S. coins do not have numbers on them indicating their value. Ecuador's official language is Spanish. The earliest settlers of the area became part of the Inca Empire. The region was colonized by the Spanish in the 16th century, then, in 1809, Ecuador proclaimed its independence and from 1820 to 1830 was part of Gran Colombia. Its independence from Spain was formally recognized in 1840. Ecuador has four main regions, the coast, highlands called Sierra Amazonia, and the Galapagos Islands. The country has a mostly tropical climate, but has a temperate climate in its highlands. Ecuador's highest mountain is the Chimborazo Volcano, which is 20,500 feet tall. The top of the mountain is the Earth's closest point to the sun. It's also the farthest point on Earth's surface from the Earth's center, due to its location along the planet's equatorial bulge. Earth is not a perfect sphere, and due to its rotation, it bulges towards the equator. The bulge is so big that Mount Chimborazo is 1.5 miles taller than Mount Everest. That's why Ecuador is also the closest country to space in the world. Only 30 miles from the capital city of Quito lies Cotopaxi, which is one of the highest active volcanoes in the world. In addition to the top of the world, Ecuador also has the middle of the world, Ciudad Mitad del Mundo, which literally means the middle of the world city, is 15 miles north of Quito and has a line where you can stand with one foot in the southern hemisphere and the other in the northern hemisphere. Ecuador is a great place for birders with its 1,600 different bird species. That's almost 15% of the bird species known to exist in the world. Its national bird is the Andean condor, which has an average weight of 15 pounds, a wingspan of 10 feet, which makes it one of the largest flying birds on Earth. Yasuni National Park in eastern Ecuador has amazing biodiversity with millions of plants, birds, insects, and mammalian species, and more than 120 species of reptiles. Ecuador is known for having the most biodiversity per square mile of any country in the world. Ecuador has a 1,500-mile coastline. The Galapagos Islands are known for their biodiversity and are an archipelago, that's the word for a group of islands, located in the Pacific Ocean, 500 miles off the coastline. They are home to more than 9,000 species of living creatures. Charles Darwin visited these islands in 1835, and his discoveries there helped him develop his theory of evolution. Marine iguanas are found only in the Galapagos Islands, but you can find other species of iguanas in other parts of Ecuador, including in city parks. 
The city of Guayaquil's Parque Seminario is an iguana paradise and is literally covered in iguanas, many of which are more than three feet long. If you want to take a break after appreciating Ecuador's natural beauty and biodiversity, you can try some plantains, quinoa, or cassava with fresh seafood. Ecuador is the largest producer and exporter of bananas in the world. The country also has other tropical fruits like mangoes and passion fruits. Cocoa beans are used in many dishes. Encebollado is a spicy soup considered by many to be the national dish of Ecuador. It is made with tuna, cassava, onion, and cilantro, and is served with fried green plantains called patacones, or rice. Guinea pig, or cuy, is considered a local delicacy and is an important part of the country's culinary culture. Motepio is another traditional food made of corn cooked with eggs and seasoned with onions, salt, and parsley. More than 350 varieties of corn grow in Ecuador. Then end your meal with pastel de tres leches, a cake made with three kinds of milk, condensed milk, evaporated milk, and cream. So that wraps up our journey to our place of the week, the country of Ecuador. All right, let's call a timeout for timeout radio. This was your host, Rohan Bakshi. You're listening to Cater 95.7 FM, where the grassroots grow. Have a great day, everyone.